You are listening to Go Full Crypto. I'm your host, Mugakshi Palway. This podcast is your best resource for crypto stories in the form of discussions and interviews. We uncomplexify tech jargon and we like to keep it simple. My co-host, Keegan Francis and I, we're here to empower you with the knowledge you need to confidently navigate your way into the world of crypto. Join us as we embark on the journey of driving the adoption of cryptocurrency. Join us in going full crypto. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palwe, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. At no point in time should the topics of discussion be construed or taken as investment advice. Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palwe, and their guests on this podcast will not be held accountable for any losses. The content discussed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are intended to be for informational purposes only. Welcome to episode 16 of the Go for Crypto podcast. In this episode, we interview Michael Peterson, who is the director of Bitcoin Beach. Now, this was a fascinating interview because we got to learn about the initiative of Bitcoin Beach, as well as how Mike Peterson came across Bitcoin, his background, and how he got involved in this initiative in the first place. And one very important um, question was answered, and that was, why Bitcoin. And Keegan and I had a fantastic time learning from Mike and learning about his story, learning about Bitcoin Beach, and we know that you will as well. So without further ado, let's dive right in. We're talking to Michael Peterson and no better person than himself to introduce himself and his crypto story. So Mike, what is your crypto story? Hey guys, it's, it's great to be with you here. Um, I was uh, an economics major in a university, and so I've always been kind of fascinated from the beginning uh, with, with Bitcoin on the monetary side and just the thought of uh, money that wasn't controlled by the government and just the, um, the opportunities that could arise from that. And so from the early days, I you know, followed, followed it. I read the white paper and I went and tried to buy some Bitcoin. I think it was in 2012, 2013. And it was just way too technical for me. I just kind of was frustrated and I couldn't even really understand the uh, instructions from the different blogs and stuff I could find online. I couldn't even figure out where to start. So I kind of forgot about it and, you know, we just kind of follow it from time to time when I would see the, an article talking about the pricing and, you know, especially if it had spiked or dropped. And um, then probably in 2015, kind of same thing, I became interested again and, and went and tried to to buy again and it was it seemed a little more accessible but still i wasn't completely comfortable that i wouldn't buy it and then never be able to access it and so i, I kind of put it on ice and it was probably in 2017 that it kind of had uh, the the user experience had come up to my technical level and so uh, that's when i started investing in bitcoin and um, was just kind of fascinated about the um the fact that government couldn't control it, that there was nobody in charge of it, the, the whole concept of decentralization, and especially what that would mean for people around the world. Um, for probably the last 20, 25 years, I've traveled quite a bit, and so um, just spent a lot of time in developing countries where the banking systems a lot of times are almost non-existent, or especially for you know 90% of the people. And so the fact of something like Bitcoin that would be open to everybody 
that it wouldn't matter if they had um, proper government identification, that it wouldn't matter if they made enough money for the banks to want to deal with them, that they could um, utilize Bitcoin. And so that was kind of what started me down the rabbit hole. And, you know, like a lot of people, it's kind of been ups and downs. And, you know, as, as things started skyrocketing in 2017, I was following along with things and, you know, through the, the long Bitcoin winter that we, we just went through. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so but that was all on kind of the personal side. And then I've been that's, working- that's quite incredible, though. You have quite the story because you came across it shortly after the Bitcoin blockchain started in 2009. And you said that you wanted to acquire it in 2011, 2012, but the user interface wasn't easy enough. So at that point, did you want to Bitcoin? Did you want to invest in Bitcoin because you fully understood it and you believed what it stood for? Or did you just want to buy it to kind of dabble um, in it a little bit and see what it was about? I think a little bit of both, but I wanted to support it from the philosophical level. Like I loved what it was trying to do, what it was trying to achieve. And so that was really kind of fascinating for me. And so I, um, like I said, as I tried to get into it, it was just so still too hard. And so I figured, well, if I can't figure this out, you know, probably 95% of the people in the world still aren't going to be able to access it. And so I didn't know if it would make the leaps that it has to make it so much, you know, more usable, but I kind of hoped that it would be something that as it went along, that'd be a lot more accessible. It's incredible that you say that you wanted to invest in it for the philosophy. We did an episode where we interviewed Keegan and he paid off a majority of a student debt because of his investments in Bitcoin. But one of the things that Keegan, you said, you want to recount your quote, you came for the gains. Oh, and I stayed for the philosophy. Yeah. So I, I got enticed because of, uh, well, basically because of the fear of missing out. I didn't want to miss out on all these crazy gains that people were talking about. But what now I actually started diving into it, looking at the economics and what it could uh, do to all the people around the world. Like you said, you don't have access to financial services. That's what really hooked me. That was because that's an emotional hook rather than a, uh, like a fear-based money-based hook. It's a like, hey, this can actually improve the quality of life for billions of people. Yeah, I would say your route's probably the 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 more common uh, route. I I think just for myself because I've always just been fascinated by monetary policy, and for me, that's where kind of the hook was. So. Yeah. So at what point in your journey between 2012 and 2017, did you make the connection between how Bitcoin was, um, had a great economic model to the way it was designed? I would say kind of along that route. I mean, the whole fact of, of the, the scarcity aspect of there only being so much. And I've always, as an, as an economics major and, and always kind of more, um, drawn to the Austrian models, like this, the world concept that most central governments and central banks have gone with of just kind of printing more money indefinitely, that, that always just kind of perplexed me, like, how, how is this ever going to end well in the end? Like, you can't just keep printing money and printing money. And so I always thought that was funny when people talk about, you know, Bitcoin and about it being a Ponzi scheme and like there's nothing backing it. I think that's because most people don't understand what money is and the fact that there really is nothing backing any money. And so would you rather be part of something that has a fixed cap or something that 
people can manipulate kind of indefinitely. And so that was kind of what drew me into it of, okay, this, this really is something that could bring us back to a, a sort of um, more modern gold standard. And so that was, you know, definitely what drew me in. Oh, that's fantastic. And that this is true. Um, even before, just speaking for myself personally, I knew about supply and demand and how that equation sort of works out. But like you said, if there's if governments keep on printing money, but there's really no a mechanism to curb that um, spending. Um, and essentially, if there's too much supply, but the demand doesn't match up or that equation isn't balanced well enough, then because of the lack of scarcity, you just don't have value retained in what exists. No, definitely. And I think the other aspect on the government spending side is I think a lot of people don't realize what a bad deal they're getting for their tax dollars because they don't, they only see part of it. They only see the part that they're actually taxed on. They don't see the inflation as a secondary tax that sometimes inflicts more pain on them than their actual income taxes. And so um, I, I could see how Bitcoin could force governments to be honest about, hey, do you want to spend 50% of what you make in order for these services or is that a raw deal? And so um, I saw it as a way too to keep, just to keep governments honest. Wow, that, that was really well said, Mike. So with all of this said, this was your personal journey into discovering and coming across Bitcoin and then finally investing it. But tell us more about Bitcoin Beach. How did that journey unfold? So it was, it was kind of crazy because there was kind of two parallel journeys. So um, about, I think it was in 2000, 2006, I believe, we bought a home in El Salvador and we, would start, we started visiting there. Uh, I like to surf. And so we'd go down there. There's you know, warm water and good waves. And so we would spend a few months each year in El Salvador. And while we were there, we started seeing some kind of some of the needs and some of the, the poverty and the lack of development in, um, in the country and feeling like, hey, if we're going to be down here, we want to be part of the solution and be able to kind of invest in people's lives. And so we started doing that. We started working with a number of different um, nonprofit organizations and churches and that were doing anything from working with women who are the victims of sex, sex trafficking to uh, running children's homes to working with the homeless. And so we created kind of an umbrella organization that would help support all these different efforts kind of behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so we've been doing that for probably the last six years. And through that, I was connected with an organization who um, had somebody donate a Bitcoin to them and was trying to figure out what their options were as far as using it. And so I was, of course, excited when they came to me to ask. I was like, oh, this is so, so great. This is like a whole nother world that kind of comes in here. And so um, I was able to give him some different options and tell him some different things that, that he could do with it. And, you know, that was kind of, I didn't really think anything more of it. And a few months later, he called me and said, hey, would you like me to introduce you to this donor and see if he wants to support the work you guys are doing there? And, of course, I wanted to meet this guy because it was just fascinated that, you know, this guy was donating Bitcoin to people and to learn more about it. And so we set up the meeting. and. Um, it was definitely different than I expected. I thought I was meeting the donor, but I wound up meeting uh, a manager that he had hired to kind of take care of everything for him. 
he he wanted to remain uh, anonymous and kind of um, out of the picture, and so he wanted to have somebody kind of serve as the, the the front person to kind of handle all the logistics. And so, through talking to his representative, I was able to get a sense of what the donor wanted to see happen. And his one key stipulation was he didn't want people that were just going to convert to fiat. Like he wanted people to actually transact in Bitcoin because he had a core belief that Bitcoin was going to be part of what was actually going to change the world and what was going to have a big impact. So he wanted people to actually be transacting in it. So that was, um, yeah, that was kind of the, his, his key requirement. And I think that's pretty remarkable on, on the part of the donor to actually deliberately install uh, some of their Bitcoin in a community with the stipulation that it gets used as Bitcoin. There's really no better way to, to jumpstart the Bitcoin economy than to go both the route that, that this person did. And so I'm personally looking forward to hearing more about how that whole journey unfolded and how Bitcoin actually got, got used in, uh, in the community. Yeah, so I so after after I kind of learned a little bit more about what the donor was looking for and I could I could tell even from the description of his managers, you know, that that he probably leaned libertarian, which was in line with my own philosophies and beliefs and um some of his concerns about government involvement were in line with with some of my own um leanings and so I felt like I kind of understood where he was coming from. And I also understood why they were having so many issues. Um, they were trying to donate to a number of different established nonprofits with these stipulations. And they kept running into problems because most nonprofits just don't know how to deal with that. They're right. Okay. You want to give us something, but we can't use it for dollars. You want us to spend it. And you know, that was just, outside of the wheelhouse for, for most nonprofits. That's just not, most of them, a lot of them had never even heard of Bitcoin or if they had, I mean, it was just kind of this magic internet money that was only good for converting to fiat and they didn't understand, you know, the whole philosophy behind it and, and kind of the core beliefs that people who are, are Bitcoiners kind of believe and, and how it'll be transformative. And so I could tell they were, they kept running into this thing of, they would donate and maybe they would find a way to buy, you know, a vehicle with Bitcoin from somebody who would accept Bitcoin. But it was just kind of this one hop journey. And then that person who sold them the vehicle was going to convert back to fiat. And so you had a little bit of transacting in Bitcoin going on, but it wasn't what the donor actually wanted to see, which was true Bitcoin economy, like it's circulating, going from one person yep. to the next, kind of getting rid of the dollar or any other fiat currency, even needing to come into the picture. And so as I kind of pondered it and thought about it, and it kind of got, it was exciting for me to think about, okay, we could propose something that's just way out there, crazy that nobody else would even, you know, take you seriously, but I think this guy would be interested in it. And we can actually try to start a Bitcoin economy in the community where we're already at. And realizing the amount of work that that was going to be and kind of the chicken and the egg thing of you're having to give people Bitcoin, but also have stores that they can spend it at at the same time and how you're going to develop that. Started thinking through, you know, this is not going to be something that we're going to be able to do in a couple months. 
we're going to need a minimum of, of a three-year timeline and a commitment for a significant amount of Bitcoin for us to make sure that this is sustainable and that we get enough momentum going that it'll continue on. And so I put together this kind of audacious proposal and they came back to me with a few questions and then said, okay, we're ready to go for it. And I was, I, honestly, I was kind oh. of shocked. I said, oh, oh, crap. Okay. Here we go. Well, now we got to do this. And yeah. It's been a wild ride ever since. I mean, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And so when, when was that? I when was, did that happen? Yeah. I was just going to say, what year was this in? So that was about, probably about 16, 17 months ago. So a little over a year. Um, End of 2018 then? Is that uh, 2019. Right? So it was, I'm sorry. Yeah. 2018. No. 2019. It was probably April <laughs> 2019. I think it was when it was. Okay. Right on. Right. So, so just as we were getting out of the crypto winter. Yeah. I would say. So we, we, uh, yeah, we had that run up into the summer, uh, last year and then, you know, it came back down obviously, but yeah, it was just, I think Bitcoin was at, $5,000 or $6,000 when I put the proposal together. Um, U.S. That's that $5,000, yeah, $6,000. Yeah, U.S. dollars. Sorry. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, no, it's all good. Um, so you had this proposal approved and then this, this all, you established a circular economy in El Zante. How did it get its name, Bitcoin Beach? I wanted something that would, you know, kind of stand out and would be a good, uh, you know, make for a good website URL. And El Zante's at the beach. And so, and we also were launching, going to launch in another community that we work in. And it's also at the beach. And so it was just kind of a natural, like Bitcoin Beach. This will be something that people will be able to remember. Um, It'll make an easy website for them to go to. And so, yeah, it was pretty pretty easy to decide on that. I was listening to another interview that you did with a fellow podcaster and you uh, mentioned that at the end of 2019, you were thinking of creating a Bitcoin symbol as a monument on the beach, sort of uh, as a tourist attraction. Is that, how's plans for that going? We're still, we're still working on that. Um, It's been a little bit complicated by COVID. Um, We wound up having to leave in May. Uh, I had to take care of some things back here in the U.S. Right. And so we were finally able to get out on like an evacuation flight because their airport had been and borders had been shut down since March. And right. we've been waiting for it to open back up. So it's supposed to open back up in a couple weeks here. So we um, that's still in the plans. We still want to do that. We want it to be of a landmark that people can come and take you know selfies in front of and you know something that's (laughs) kind of different and funny but also kind of gets the message out there that hey there's this crazy place where you can buy everything in bitcoin and they have this crazy bitcoin monument you know that's fun to take your picture in front of and so i think just kind of fun things like that that get people thinking and kind of questioning like wow okay well what is this what does this big B symbol mean? And what is this currency that people are using on their phones to be able to buy things in? So that was kind of a, I like thinking about the marketing aspect of it and just things to get people kind of questioning, get um, reporters interested in, okay, what's going on down there? So just kind of a wacky idea. 
Right. I just realized that uh, it's possible that a lot of our listeners don't know what country El Zante is in. And to our listeners, El Zante is um, in a country called El Salvador, which is the smallest and most densely populated country in Central America. And uh, Mike has yeah. established a circular economy where people in this town of El Zante, I'm assuming, uh, I'm not assuming, but I researched the population was 3,000 people. Yeah, there's right? about 3,000 people there. And, and, we, and we have another community too that has probably about 500 people. So we're, we're launching kind of in both the communities at the same time. And they're all, how, 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 how much of that, like 100% of the, the people that live in that town are transacting in Bitcoin? So I wouldn't say 100%, but I would say probably 90% have at least transacted or have somebody in their immediate family who has transacted. Um, and that that is still about, an astonishing number. Yeah, that's Congratulations. awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was, um, it, COVID actually really ramped up our timeline and, and um, actually allowed us to roll out Bitcoin in a meaningful way sooner than we had anticipated. Um, when El Salvador, they shut, basically shut down their whole country before they even had one confirmed case of COVID. So nobody was allowed to go to work. You know, nobody was a, really even allowed to leave their home other than maybe once a week. Um, and so it was a very strict lockdown. And El Salvador is a developing country, so most of the people kind of live hand to mouth. They don't have, most of them don't even have bank accounts, but even if they do, they don't have a lot of savings there. And so we had a real concern of, okay, what, how are people going to eat? How are they going to continue to put food on the table when they can't go to work? And so we decided at that moment to roll out um, basically a universal cash transfer program to all the families in El Zante using Bitcoin. And so over kind of a month period, we were able to gather all the different information and get a hold of kind of the representatives of all the families and then teach them how to download a wallet and give them disbursements of Bitcoin. And so every three weeks we would disperse, you know, about 35 US dollar equivalent of Bitcoin to these families to be able to buy food from the local stores um, during the COVID shutdown. Wow, and you had to ramp up um, the education that was required right before the lockdown happened. So that's in the first three months of this year. Yeah. So uh, fortunately, I mean, we, so we rolled out things in the fall last year. So October, right. November, we were working primarily with the youth. Um, El Salvador has a big uh, gang problem and a lot of the youth are drawn into the gangs. And so we wanted to develop kind of an alternative route for the youth. And one of the things that we saw as being important was just um, job opportunities and education. And so we've been working with the youth to pay them to do different things within the community. So they'll, they'll pick up trash, they'll clean the river. Um, sometimes they'll do repairs on older people's homes in the community and anything that's needed, they will work after school and they receive payment in Bitcoin. And then we also give them a stipend in Bitcoin if they get good grades. And so if they reach a certain level, uh, kind of every quarter, they're given a Bitcoin stipend as, you know, or kind of a reward for continuing with school and getting grades. And so 
we already had probably 50 or 60 young people within the community that were very familiar with Bitcoin. We'd made lots of transactions. We already had probably three stores that were accepting it where these kids were using Bitcoin. And so during COVID, we were able to use the youth as kind of the um, tutors and ambassadors for this program. So they were training, they were helping us distribute, and they were teaching their you know, extended family members how to download the wallets, how to make payments. And so it really right. worked out great that we were able to use them. And even though they were still fairly new to Bitcoin, had only been in it for you know, maybe six months at most, most of them had already made dozens of transactions. So they actually were more comfortable with it than, I mean, I know a lot of Bitcoiners who have been in Bitcoin for <laughs> maybe five years, but they've only made a handful of transactions before. And so these, you know, these, these kids were, you know, took to it very easy. They could, you know, show people very quickly how to do it. That is such a thoughtful and genius way of getting youth involved in something that is meaningful and that will in turn, help the economy and uh, just the education of Bitcoin in the community of El Zante. Fantastic idea, Mike. <laughs> I'm thinking about the quality well, of life for these youth as well yeah. and just how much opportunity this brings to them in terms of financial education. Yeah, and financial literacy, just learning the value of earning um, a Bitcoin or you know a fraction of a Bitcoin or a Satoshi. Money, nonetheless. Money, exactly. Yeah. And just that that is a fantastic incentive. I wish I could say I was smart enough that we set out to do that. But the reality is we started out with the adults and <laughs> we quickly realized that, that it was going to be a very, very steep learning curve. They were very suspicious of it. They, the, some of the, even the simple technology side of it, they felt off-putting. And so we, we just weren't getting much traction at all with the adults. and. But for the youth, they came into it without these preconceived notions of what money should be. They were used to transacting and doing things on their phone all the time. So this seemed like a natural extension for them. And so we quickly realized that it's much better starting with the youth and then they can teach their parents, their grandparents, you know, how to utilize these things. And so we kind of more lucked into it than it being a great insight on my part. You still planted the seed that grew into something unexpected as well, though. Like that, that deserves the credit. It kind of doesn't even matter the path that you took so long <laughs> as you get to the right destination. Yeah, I found that you just kind of, you just, when you fail, you got to just try a different route. And so, uh, yeah. Right on. Oh, I, yeah. We got there. Yeah, we have a quote on our wall that says, uh, you never tried something new if you didn't fail. Um, and definitely keeps us encouraged and motivated to take risks and try new things. Definitely. So, no, I, I've seen even outside of Bitcoin, I've had a couple other businesses, and a lot of times I think I have this great idea, and it turns into a total failure, but it winds up opening the door for something that's even bigger than I initially anticipated. So um, I think it's important you kind of just stick with it, and just when you fail, you say, okay, what have we learned, and where can we go from here? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I'm curious, um, with when you introduced Bitcoin to this community, and I, I saw this picture of um, a Bitcoin symbol on a van, and it said Bitcoin education with a desk in front. There was this 
um, person behind the desk and it looked like there was somebody else on the opposite side. And, you know, a really, um, I guess, um, crude and rudimentary way of getting started with um, just giving Bitcoin to people in a sense so that they can learn how to use it. But how did you figure out or how did you fuel an economy um, that was circular in a sense? How did you teach them to transact among themselves? So, like I said, we started with the youth and we would just give them $10 worth of Bitcoin and they would send it back and forth to each other and just realize, you know, with the wallets these days, how, how easy that was. Um, and then we brought a couple stores on board. We told them, hey, we're going to be distributing Bitcoin. It's money. There's value there. We will walk alongside you and make sure that when you need to convert to dollars that you get the same amount or more, you know, than you would have if you would have accepted dollars. Because obviously with Bitcoin, the volatility is always a concern, especially for, you know, somebody new and we wanted to make sure that they didn't get a bad taste in their mouth right off the bat. And so we would connect them with people that were looking to buy Bitcoin. Uh, when needed, we would step in and be that liquidity provider. And we would also kind of encourage them like, hey, we know you need to convert some of this back to fiat to pay your suppliers. Hopefully longer term, you'll be able to pay them in Bitcoin. But for now, we understand that's a need, but maybe consider saving a small amount in Bitcoin and see you know, how that compares to your cash savings over time. And then once we were able to bring on that they could bring their water bill, pay their water bill in Bitcoin, now that store can also use a portion to pay their water bill. Uh, we recently, um, actually through a, a local small business has started accepting Bitcoin payments for paying people's electric bill. So they're serving as kind of a middleman to they accept payments in Bitcoin and then they pay the electric company. And there's enough of a market in El Salvador for Bitcoin that they're able to turn around and sell that Bitcoin for a 10% premium over market price. And so they're serving this function of helping people pay their electric bills, helping the stores have an outlet of you know, circulating their Bitcoin, but also helping inject Bitcoin into El Salvador on the, you know, the grander scheme. And so it's kind of just been focusing on opportunities like that one little thing at a time. Right. So I'm curious to know, was there any temptation for people once they receive Bitcoin to cash it out into U.S. dollar right away? Yeah, there was definitely. And I think um, in the early stages, like that's a lot of them would would try to do that right away. We try to encourage them that, hey, this is what this is given for. At least try it first. You'll always have that opportunity. There's, there's a world market for this, so you can cash it out. And so I think over time, and especially because Bitcoin has been going up in value, you know, obviously with lots of volatility, but they've seen that, hey, over time, this does better than the US dollar. And so there's no need to cash it out. There's plenty of opportunities to. So I'll just keep it in Bitcoin for now. And if I need to cash it out in the future, I will. But it's easy to pay my electric bill where before they would have to take the bus for an hour, go into town, wait in line for two hours, pay the company for their electric bill, come home. They would spend you know, a lot of times $2 in bus fare 
and half a day to pay a $5 electric bill. Now they have an opportunity. They don't even have to leave their house. They can just tell the contact the, the company that's doing this. They'll send them a lightning invoice. They send them a payment and a picture of their electric bill and their electric bill gets paid. That's amazing. So over time, they've seen that, wow, this is better than the U.S. dollar. There's more opportunity with this. Um, And especially during COVID, when there was the restrictions on movement, there was the concerns about transacting, even people concerned about um, the transacting in U.S. dollars from one person to another. With, With Bitcoin, you remove all those touch points. They could send them money from their home and have somebody come deliver the food to them, you know, almost like they had Amazon. And for, the, for them, they've never had anything like that. So, yeah, so that was kind of the value, part of the value proposition. Do you think that uh, the, for the people that wanted to cash out to the U.S. dollar immediately, do you think that was a, a stepping stone to seeing Bitcoin as value or valuable? Because uh, I think for a lot of people that, that we speak to, that's one of the first questions that we get. It's like, how do I cash this out into quote unquote real money? And, and to me, that says that they don't understand that, okay, no, hold on. This Bitcoin is real money. You never really need to do that cash out step. You can actually just use it directly as cash. And my question to you is, is that a stepping stone in your eyes? And if, if not, then what, what do you see that as? What, uh, what is that a symptom of? No, I definitely think that's that's a necessary stepping stone, and I think the fiat off ramps and on ramps are are crucial. And that's that's something I was very honest with the the donor from the get go. Is hey, we need people to have the opportunity. They need to be able to have the opportunity to convert to fiat for it to have value to them. And so, if mm-hmm. they know they convert it at any time, they won't have to convert it. But if they think, man, I might not have the future to convert this into dollars, they're going to want to convert it right away. And so one of, the, one of the things that we did early on in the project was we contacted a Bitcoin ATM company and encouraged them to place a Bitcoin ATM in our community. And so Athena Bit- Bitcoin uh, wound up putting a Bitcoin ATM in El Zante. Now, mind you, we don't even have a normal ATM in El Zante. So this was like <laughs> a pretty big thing for there to be a Bitcoin ATM in there, and the first one in the country. And I think even that, for the majority of the people, that all of a sudden gave it credibility of like, wow, there's a machine I can send my Bitcoin to, and it's going to spit out dollars. And not only that, there's people coming from the capital city, which is about an hour from us, who are driving here to put dollars into this machine to buy Bitcoin at a premium. They're paying extra to be able to get it. And so I think that was kind of a light bulb moment for people in the community that, wow, this is real. This isn't some just kind of made a thing. This is doctors and lawyers and professionals from the city are driving here to have access to this thing that, that we were one of the first people in the country to have access to. That's pretty remarkable. That is fantastic. So what is your end goal for El Zante and the, the surrounding town that also um, transacts in Bitcoin? Yeah, so, so it's actually the, the other town is about three hours from us. So they're kind of on both ends of the country. That was, we're kind of hopeful we'll fill in the rest of the coast along <laughs> the, the way. We want, we want El Salvador 
to be known as the, the crypto coast of uh, the Americas. And so that's kind of the goal there. Um, but we want to make sure that it's sustainable. We realize right now we are injecting outside resources in and that can't go on forever. And so we're just trying to provide the momentum and we're trying to put other things in place that will carry that along. So one of the key things that we're trying to drive is to have people start sending remittances in Bitcoin. Um, El Salvador, their GDP is very dependent on people living in the US or Canada or Europe, sending money back to family members in El Salvador. I think it's like 22% of El Salvador's GDP comes from this, which is crazy. It's this huge amount. And the current systems like Western Union and the other ways of doing money transfers, they, they take a lot of that in transaction fees. And it also is a big hassle for people. They have to go to the capital city. They have the risk of carrying cash on them on the bus. They have the transaction fees can, especially if you want to send a small amount, the transaction fees can, can be higher than 20% sometimes. And so our goal is for people to realize that they don't need to do that anymore. They can send directly from Canada or the U.S., to their mom who doesn't even have to leave her house. She gets it on her phone. Then she can spend it at the local store. She can go to the ATM and, and pull out cash. Um, right. You kind of bypass all those channels that are, that have been serving that, you know, community for so long. So with the, the, the system that currently exists outside of El Zante, um, tell us about the financial services that exist because Western union, if, to receive a payment from overseas, all right, in, in a place like Canada or the States, you can receive that directly to your bank account. But tell us the situation about access to banking or financial services in El Salvador. So that's one thing I think coming from the, the Western world, a lot of times we don't realize how many people are still unbanked in the world and just don't have access to a bank account. So I would say in our town, probably at least 80% of the people do not have bank accounts. And that's probably, um, would probably be a similar percentage across the country. I don't know the exact stats, but that would be my guess somewhere in that realm. But are and banking so, services available? I'm sorry, what? Uh, are banking services available and just that the criteria and the eligibility criteria is set too high for 80% of the people to not be able to qualify? Or are they not there in the first place? So it's, it's two things. I mean, one, it's, there's nothing in El Zante where we're at. So it's a minimum of an hour bus ride to, to get to a banking location. Uh, a lot of the banks will not uh, open accounts for people unless they have a job in the formal sector. And most people are working in the informal sector, so they don't have the pay stubs or the um, tax returns or the other things that the banks want to see to open an account. There's a few that are a little less selective and they will open accounts, but a lot of times the customer service is, is lousy. Um, the minimum requirements are too high for the people or the people just don't, they don't trust to, to put the money in the bank. They don't want to have to, you know, travel all that distance to access it. They don't want, there to be an issue with their paperwork where they can't get a hold of it. And so 
for the majority of the people, they still are not using formal banking services. Right. That is incredible. And I think that the percentage goes as 20% of the world's population is unbanked. Yeah, approximately 1.6 billion. But that's probably a pretty rough estimate, but it's thereabouts. Yeah. And that, that's quite yeah. high, 80%. I was very surprised to hear that number. But I, Like I said, it, it could be in the broader country, it might be lower than that. Um, but right. I'd say where, where we're at um, and kind of the, the smaller villages, that that would, be, that that would usually be the case. Uh, and so, part of it is you look at the you know, average salary of people is, you know, about $300 and most banks, you know, $300 like per paycheck or, or a year? A month. Oh, okay. Yeah. $300 a month. And so for a lot of banks, there's not a lot of money to be made in dealing with somebody who's making $300 a month, unless they charge them a lot of fees. And for the people if if they're charging them $15 a month to have a bank account, and they're only making $300 a month, it's, you know, that's a pretty significant portion of their paycheck that's going- That's 5% of their paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So what you're essentially establishing is um, financial services in the form of Bitcoin, skipping the entire notion of wanting to depend on an intermediary uh, in order to provide a place to store your money and receive your money too. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it's not, the other thing is, I think as coming from the US or Canada, sometimes we take for granted just how easy it is to send or receive money. Um, and most of the world, they don't make it easy. There's all kinds of different government regulations and different documents and everybody's afraid of running afoul of the US government and their KYC requirements. And so they'll require identification documents that a lot of people don't have. And so it's, it can be a lot of headache. I mean, even for me, when we're in El Salvador, the easiest way for me to get access to money is to withdraw from my U.S. bank account with an ATM card. If I try to send money down there, like in the past, I've tried to send money to a contractor that was doing work for us. I mean, it would get held up for a month and they would want all this supporting documentation and you don't know if it's ever going to be released and it's, it creates all this uncertainty. And so for most people, they just would prefer to not have to, to deal with that. Oh, that's, well, in, in one way, um, there is a problem and we have a solution to that problem. And now the challenge is amplifying that solution and distributing it to 20% of the world's population that doesn't have access to financial resources. And that's something that you are doing in El Zante, in El Salvador, and that's fantastic to hear. So Keegan and I are Bitcoiners, and uh, you said some, something in the very uh, beginning of this episode, you came across Bitcoin and uh, you loved, the, you stayed for the philosophy and that, that was one of the reasons that caught you. Um, and my question is, why Bitcoin? To be honest, um... Well, for me, I, from, from the get-go, just the fact that it was the first, the, um, the, I mean, you'd say the, I mean, it only has a 12, 13-year history, but you still have that kind of longevity and that history versus some of the, the newer cryptos. When we started this project, I was definitely feeling like maybe we'd be better off looking at some of the other alternatives especially when it comes to fees and transaction times. And 
basically it boiled down to that the donor wouldn't wouldn't have any of that. He was very adamant that it had to be Bitcoin only. And I'm very thankful that he that he kind of stuck to his guns on that because now that we're a year into it, I realize how just hugely important it is the network effect and the liquidity that comes with Bitcoin versus other cryptos. Because people in El Zante, they can go on the internet and look up Bitcoin and they can see people all over the world will trade them whatever fiat currency they have for Bitcoin. They'll see just this huge amount of articles. You, they'll see people that, you know, companies that are putting their reserves in Bitcoin. So it gives them this yeah. security that, okay, I don't totally understand Bitcoin, but I see that there's lots of people all around the world that are using it. And so that coupled with the fact that now we have doctors and lawyers and very educated people in El Salvador that are coming to El Zante that are buying Bitcoin from the ATM or, or trying to buy Bitcoin from the local people. It gives them that security that like, okay, it's not just us. We're not just taking somebody else's word for it. There's all these other people that want Bitcoin and think that Bitcoin is valuable. And if we would have gone with, with some other currency just because the transaction time was better or the fees were less, we would lose all that. And I, I think the, the whole um, experiment would have just collapsed. And so I really, um, I'm really thankful that the donor had the insight to make sure that we stuck to Bitcoin. And, and it's, it caused some problems, especially when, when fees jumped really significantly um, on-chain fees. Probably two months into our project, they went from being, you know, 25 cents that we were paying to, you know, a couple of dollars on average. And so that really created some issues for people that were spending a dollar or, you know, 50 cents or, you know, $5 even. And so that was when we switched over, everything over to the Lightning Network. And that was just a, a huge jump to, to go to that. And it solved the, the issues of waiting for the transactions to be confirmed. It solved the fee issues. You know, obviously there's still some issues with Lightning and there's people that would um, have concerns about the fact that we're primarily dealing with custodial wallets and you know there's still we're still in the early days so i'm not saying it's the final solution but right. i think that we'll just continue to develop solutions around bitcoin we don't need to jump to these other coins just cuz they're better technology or faster i mean i think liquidity is always going to win and so i'm glad we're bitcoin only nice that's fantastic so if i was to summarize it in, in one sentence bitcoin because a network effect and high liquidity and trust just that the fact trust. that there's people can go online and see that bitcoin is accepted everywhere in the world i mean there's not probably any country in the world where there's not people that will trade bitcoin for their local currency and so there's no other crypto you can say that about we love that you're saying this because one of the uh, critiques or uh, it's almost false news that um, people or false conceptions really not news that people have is that Bitcoin cannot be trusted and it cannot be trusted because there's no founder behind it or you, you don't know the founder it's Satoshi Nakamoto and there's no one governing the currency and 
I think we all can agree that people all around the world who believe in Bitcoin are the ones that are governing the currency. And what sort of um, critique have you faced, if any, from people who hear about this amazing thing you're doing? I'd, I'd say on, on one side, we have the, the purists um, who don't like the fact that we are using custodial wallets. Um, they would say that that's not really Bitcoin, you know, not your keys, not your coins. And they would make an argument that um, we're not staying true to what Bitcoin was supposed to be about. Um, I understand where they're coming from, but I think we need to have a more balanced approach. I think if we let those people control the narrative that Bitcoin will never become more than this kind of niche computer geek thing. I think in order for wide adoption, we have to realize that the user experience and the interface like are hugely important. And so custodial wallets do a little bit better job right now. And hopefully over time that will go away. But for now, we're kind of willing to make some of those trade-offs between the security risks that come with a custodial um, solution and the usability. And also to be just realistic with the fact that most of the people we're dealing with would probably face more risk of losing their coins if they were using non-custodial than right. the risks that come with using custodial. Just the, they're living in a lot of them 10 shacks with dirt floor, no secure place to even hide their keys. Um, the ways that they probably would control their keys would put them at a higher risk than them using a custodial solution. And so, but we're, but we're definitely balanced. We want to see in the long run, we want people using non-custodial solutions but we feel like the custodial wallets are a good stepping stone on the way there. And right on. I'm sorry. Go yeah, no, I, I just wanted to add something here is, is, and that it's, uh, it, it sounds to me like you have a similar philosophy that we do. Like one of the names that we have for Bitcoin is the people's currency, which that, what that means to us is we want people to decide for themselves, all people, every single person to decide what Bitcoin means to them and use it in the way that best serves their interests. And that's against that like purist, uh, hey, everything has to be on chain, no lightning network, everything's non-custodial, uh, right? That's a very like narrow approach, but uh, sounds to me like you've adopted, okay, let's go broader than that. Let's go balanced. What big, what does Bitcoin mean to you? How do you think it can enhance your life? And like, let's let's walk down that direction together. And, and that's the main reason why we like to call Bitcoin the people's currency as well is because it's it's something that people can take for themselves and use in whatever they whichever way they see fit. Yeah, no, I would, I would say we totally align with that. And we're actually working on a project right now with a wallet developer where we will have a, a custodial wallet that still has the usability um, that, that the people want, but something where we can have a, a multi-sig key for the, the funds and the Lightning node where we can have some control where we're not just trusting strangers, but we have um, keep some of that control within the community. And of course, we would always encourage anybody who has a significant amount of funds to learn um, the security protocols to keep all their stuff in a hardware wallet and not have it um, in a even even within our system. But we think for most people, if they're going to be keeping a few hundred dollars, um, the trade-offs of the usability are 
much greater than the security risk. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, that's a very balanced approach. Okay, so what you're doing in Azante is radical enough. But my question to you is, what's another radical idea that you have that you would like to come see true? So kind of as a follow-on on what we're doing, we want to see um, jobs develop within El Zante and kind of higher value jobs, not just the, you know, right now it's kind of focused on tourism or agriculture. And so we would like there to be more job opportunities for the youth in the community. And so kind of my dream is that El Zante would be a place where Bitcoin related companies would choose to relocate or at least have a developer team working there. Um, part just because it's great quality of living for the developers. They can be living at the beach with great restaurants, yoga, surfing, kind of this great lifestyle at a very affordable price, good weather, but also have in their own backyard just a, a community that they could launch their, their products into. So they could actually see in real time how people are using um, the products that they're creating. And so that's kind of our goal for the next step is that we'll find some companies that want to kind of stand out and are willing to take a chance and um, at least do like a three-month commitment to send the team down and, and see if they would like to relocate there permanently. So we would kind of like to build on that and build kind of higher value um, activities that the locals can eventually move into for employment. And so that is kind of one thing. And along with that, we would like to have a Bitcoin, um, a Bitcoin focused housing community there. So we're, I, I have a name for it already. It'll be a Citadel by the sea. And uh, <laughs> love the would, uh, it's a beautiful area. I mean, you got amazing views of the beach, great beaches, um, you know, nice ocean breezes. And so we think that longer term, there would be a lot of Bitcoiners that would love to have a second home or even a primary residence in a place like El Zante where they can go down and buy, you know, pay for their, their dinner in Bitcoin. They can pay their, you know, gardener in Bitcoin. They can be part of a community that is transacting in Bitcoin on a daily basis. And so that's kind of the next level of what, what I would love to see happen. I mean, obviously there would, there's a lot of steps to, to get there, but that's kind of the longer term goal. Well, that, that's, that is a fantastic idea. And like you said, Citadel by the Sea, Bitcoin Beach, and um, the Bitcoin shore on the West. Was that the other term that you wanted? Else Crypto Coast. Crypto Coast. Sorry. Yes, there we go. Crypto Coast. <laughs> so you've definitely got the marketing going for you with all of these fantastic names. And with your level of commitment and passion towards this project, um, I'm very excited to see your journey as well as Keegan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're very excited to see your journey. So how can people find you and how can people support what you're doing? So people can find us at uh, bitcoinbeach.com um, is the website. And then also on Twitter at, at Bitcoin Beach. And we would love to have people come down to El Zante and visit and bring their Bitcoin to spend at the local businesses. Um, that would be amazing. We're always looking for people who have different expertise that want to come and contribute. 
Um, right now we're partnering with an organization called Blockchain for Humanity, and they've been putting together a number of educational courses for people in the community. And so they have the technology, technological know-how to put that all together and present that. And so um, just finding people who have different gifts that want to come, come invest in the community. And then people can also uh, donate in Bitcoin uh, through our website. And we don't convert it to fiat. That all just goes right back into the community. That's fantastic. Um, can you repeat the name of your website one more time? Sure. It's just Bitcoin Beach, all one word, bitcoinbeach.com. Um, .com. Yeah, no dashes or anything like that. It's the, you know, just the, the two words together. So it's pretty easy to find. Wonderful. Well, it was lovely having to get to know what you're doing, to learn about your crypto story and know where you're headed with um, adding to the Bitcoin revolution, Mike. Thank you so much. Yeah, for it was so, so this great chat. To, to chat with and you everything guys. To do. <laughs> I'd love to have you guys come down and, uh, and visit. We can do a, a follow up on site there in El Zante. That'd oh, be amazing. That sounds like a fantastic idea. We'll inject some of our own Bitcoin into the economy and that will give us some immense satisfaction. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of Canadians that come down in uh, like November through uh, February. So you'll be right at home. Everybody's escaping the cold to come down there. Yeah. Yep. That makes complete sense. That's a fantastic idea, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned.